Welcome to the 171st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Antoinette Van Houten, author of the mystery and thriller novels, The Tulip Eaters and Saving Max. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by the book-loving nerds at Riffle. Riffle is an online book community that connects readers with authors and books that they'll love. Readers use Riffle to find the next book that they want to read. And authors use Riffle to make their books stand out and drive sales. Join the Riffle community today at rifflebooks.com. That's R-I-F-F-L-E-B-O-O-K-S.com. And look for the link in the show notes as well. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Antoinette Van Houten, author of the new thriller novel, The Tulip Eaters. Antoinette, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. And I, I can actually re-record this. Am I butchering your first name? Absolutely not. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> well, <laughs> well can, I, I just wanted to double check. I'll just cut that out. But, um, okay. So can I have you read the first couple of pages from your new novel, The Tulip Eaters? I'd be happy to. Chapter 1, November 1980. Nora balanced the grocery bag on one hip and inserted her key into the lock of the door, leading from the garage into the house. This was the best moment of every day, Rose, her beautiful baby, almost six months old now. Every little thing she did was a revelation, how she raised her tiny hand to Nora's face as she held her, how her wide eyes, the deepest of blues, reacted to the slightest change of tenor in Nora's voice, how the warmth of her small body nestled into Nora's when she took her into her arms. When she held Rose, Nora didn't know where her own body ended and her daughter's began. Mom, she called. No response, but that was normal. This was usually when her mother put Rose into her tiny ruffled bathing suit and swirled her around in the pool. Moving back from Amsterdam to live with her mother had been a blessing. The thought of Annika and Rose at home playing while she worked filled her with gratitude, and today was no exception. Contentment warmed her as she thought of the love she and Annika shared in caring for Rose. Grandmother, mother, and child, life was perfect. Nora shifted the groceries higher onto her hip and glanced at the pile of mail on the entryway table. Nothing interesting. The newspaper lay open. She scanned the headlines. Iranian phantoms and F-5 Tiger IIs attack Iraqi airfields near Basra. Nora shook her head. It was already 1980. Would the Middle East ever write itself? Her eyes flipped down the page. Los Angeles, comedian Richard Pryor badly burned freebasing cocaine. Big surprise, she thought. She looked through the living room window and caught a shimmer of water from the pool. Joy flooded her. She would take the groceries into the kitchen and then put on her bathing suit. She couldn't wait to hold Rose in her arms. Every evening it felt the same, as if she had been gone for days. That first touch of baby skin revived her spirit, calmed her soul. She stepped into the living room, still holding the groceries. She heard them crash to the floor and then her own scream. Mom! Annika lay prostrate on the thick white carpet her beautiful hazel eyes gaping at the ceiling, a single bullet hole through her forehead. No, screamed Nora. 
She ran into the living room, fell to her knees, and feverishly searched for a pulse. Her fingers pressed again and again into the soft skin of her mother's neck, but there was nothing, nothing. Darkness exploded within her as she stared into Annika's vacant eyes. Nora's heart leaped when she heard ragged breathing until she realized that it was her own. Oh God, Mom, she moaned. Nora bent and cupped her mother's face with shaking hands. As she pressed Annika's cold cheek against her own, Nora felt her heart slamming against her ribs, her breath now in hoarse gasps. Moaning, she closed her eyes, hoping wildly that when she opened them, this would all be a nightmare. But when she looked again, all she could see was a sickening stream of dark, ugly blood that ran from the gaping hole in Annika's forehead in a jagged path down her pale cheek. Then she released her mother's face and saw the same slick blood on her own palms. Vomit rose up, but she fought it down. She stared at this face she loved. Mom, she whispered, please, please don't leave me. Half choking, she looked at the blood on her shaking hands. Then she smelled it, a metallic odor of copper and rust, one she recognized all too well from the operating room. Her own mother's blood on her hands. Bile rose in her again. She studied the bullet hole. Scarlet blood had stained her mom's silver hair, turning it a grisly purple. The flesh around it charred and black. The odor made Nora gag when she realized it smelt like burnt pork. Moaning, she sat and clutched Annika's limp body and rocked her back and forth. Annika's slight frame swayed with the movement. Then Nora noticed that her gorgeous gray hair had been hacked off in ugly clumps leaving stark patches of white scalp. She looked wildly around, tufts of silver hair all over the carpet, feathers from a bird shot from the sky. Why, she cried, why would anyone do this to you? She drew back to shift her mom's body onto the carpet. Annika's head lolled to one side. Nora screamed. The bullet had blasted a large hole through the back of her head. Nora felt faint. Gray brain matter mixed with blood hung out of Annika's skull. Nora tried to push the gray lumps back into her mother's skull. They felt like buttery worms and smelled like spoiled eggs. Mom! Oh, Mom! Gasping, she saw nothing but the hideous remains of her mother's head and the slippery blood and brain matter on her own hands. The monstrous sight gripped her. She struggled up onto all fours and heaved waves of green bile onto the carpet. Then she knelt, taking huge breaths, trying not to pass out. The silence felt endless. She heard only the ticking of the grandfather clock across the room, a relentless metronome to the macabre scene before her. She roused herself. Her next thought was an iron spike into her brain. Rose, she cried, where are you? Adrenaline shot through her as she jumped up and ran to the bassinet. No, Rose. She raced into the nursery. The room was dark, the crib empty. No. Panic surged within her. She rushed back into the living room and ran past her mother, desperate to search the other rooms. Running toward her bedroom, her heel caught on the rug and she fell. Pain seared through her right ankle. Sobbing, she rolled over and found herself face to face with a total stranger. A man lay on his stomach, his right arm outstretched. His head was twisted toward her, right cheek pressed into the carpet. She screamed and tried to move away, but her ankle felt on fire. His face was so close that she could have felt his breath on hers, if he were alive. His black eyes looked as dead and cold as her mother's. Then she saw the gun, dark and sinister, inches away from his outstretched arm and gloved fingers. Nora gasped, her heart in her throat. Who was he? And where, oh God, where was Rose? 
She got to her feet, wincing at the pain in her ankle, and rushed into each of the rooms. Rose, she cried, Rose. She limped back and knelt by her mother, sobbing. Where is Rose, Mom? Where is the baby? She appealed to Annika as if she could still give Nora an answer. Annika's blank, unholy stare never moved from the ceiling. What in God's name had happened? She rose unsteadily, favoring her ankle. Her body still shook. Who was the dead man? Why had he killed her mother? And Rose, why would anyone kidnap her baby? Ignoring the pain in her ankle, she ran to the front door and flung it open. She saw no one in the street, no one in the neatly groomed front yards. Rose, she screamed, as if her darling could answer her. She slammed the door and went back inside. Something on the carpet now caught her eye. As she knelt down and picked it up, she moaned. It was Rose's tiny yellow hairband. Its cheerful flower had been ripped off and lay a few feet away. Then she knew. Rose was really gone. She clutched the flower to her breast and sobbed. One thought now pierced her mind. Was Rose still alive? Great. Well, (laughs) (laughs) a very exciting uh, beginning. So if someone hasn't uh, heard about your new novel, The Tulip Eaters, yet, how would you describe the novel? I would describe the novel as a, a woman who's obviously, as you've heard from what I read, comes home to an absolute nightmare. Um, it is a journey of a mother not only to find her daughter who's been kidnapped. Uh, the man on the floor turns out to be Dutch. Uh, her mother was Dutch. And it's a journey that she has to go into her mother's past in order to find the secrets necessary to discover who has taken Rose and to try to find Rose, which takes her back to Amsterdam and into the same neighborhoods where her mother lived during the uh, Second World War. It's a story about Dutch Nazis, which is uh, something most people don't know about. I certainly didn't when I first did research uh, about it. And the Dutch Nazi party reached 100,000 members at the peak of the war and was a very powerful influence in Holland during the war. Both of my parents fought in the resistance. So this is a story about Nora finding two sets of identification papers for her parents. Two sets of identification papers for her parents, one showing they were heroes in the resistance, one showing that they were Dutch Nazis. So this is the this is the conundrum and the mystery in the in the novel. And uh, she goes back to Amsterdam to try to find primarily her daughter, but also to learn who her mother really was. Interesting. Well, I know that you, as you just described, you write about World War II and and the Tulip Eaters. What was your own family's connection to World War II? I I read on your blog about your father. Can you talk about that a little bit? Of course. Uh, My parents were Dutch, both born in The Hague. They were teenagers during the resistance. They were both in the resistance. So I'd heard stories about this as a child. Um, I lost my mother when she was 20. And when I got out of college, I think it's a way to, to try to stay connected to her and maybe learn more about what her, her, her life had been um, early, early on. I got a grant to study the Dutch resistance at the War Institute in Holland, in Amsterdam. So I went there and did research for two years. I, was, I wrote uh, a thesis on it. And then after I finished Saving Max, my first novel, I found these boxes of research and I thought, you know, this, this would make a great thriller. So that's how I came up with the idea. But both of my parents were in the resistance. My mother uh, 
used to, was a courier, took papers and microfiche on her bicycle to different places. My father was um, involved with the British Secret Service as well as um, blowing up munitions depots to foil the Germans. Uh, so they were both very active in it. Um, and I think it completely shaped their lives. They came over to the States after the war. Uh, my mother happened to be born in New York, so she had American citizenship. That's a long story. So my father had to wait <laughs> to come over. And uh, so they moved to New Orleans and, and moved to Houston. But it was always something of a very delicate subject in my house, and I, I wanted to know more about it. Sure, sure. So, so what led you to writing your first novel, Saving Max? Had you always been interested in writing fiction, and, and what prompted you to sit down and write that novel? I had always been interested in writing fiction. I was a lawyer for 15 years, um, so that obviously teaches you how not to write. But <laughs> after I, uh, I got remarried, I have one Asperger's son. My husband has two autistic sons. So when that happened, I quit practicing law, and my son, when he was nine, shortly after we were married, uh, sort of fell apart and was having a great deal of difficulty at school, was violent. Uh, we really couldn't handle him anymore, and I had to take him to uh, Menninger's Hospital, which you may or may not have heard of. is a wonderful psychiatric hospital in Kansas, which no longer exists, unfortunately. But I took him there and kept a journal because I was so afraid of, of what might happen, what they might tell us, because their approach was to take a whole team approach and take a month to, uh, to assess him. So I kept a journal, and one day, they only let me see him twice a day for 10 minutes, and he was a young boy, you know, he was terrified, so I, I just stayed there. And um, I remember sitting there in this lockdown facility, where he had been thrown in with adolescents with drug problems and suicides and all of that. And I thought, you know, this would be a perfect place for a murder. And that's when I decided to turn that information that I had planned to write as a nonfiction uh, book to write it as a thriller. And, and once you finished that novel, what was the path to publication like for you? Did you work with a literary agent? What was that, what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. I started writing that book. Uh, I wrote the book, took me about four years to write the book because I'm a lawyer, of course, and it, it started out being a thousand words. So there's, there's the worst start you could possibly have way too long and didn't know what I was doing particularly well, but I contacted, um, an agency that helped you find agents and they referred me to an agent who will remain unnamed, who decided that. The book should not be written from the mother's point of view. It should be written from the detective's point of view. So I spent two years rewriting, because I was naive, rewriting that book from the detective's point of view, and I hated it. I hated the book, and New York hated the book. It went up and down everywhere. Everybody said, you know, great writing, love the writing, but what is this? You know, it's not a mystery. It's not a detective. What is this? So I uh, disentangled myself from that agent. And was fortunate enough to, to submit some pages to Al Zuckerman at Writer's House, who is my agent, who has been in the business for, you know, 60-some-odd years. Uh, Al has a very, a very distinct way of working with his authors, which, which includes uh, telling you that he, he really likes your writing, but of course we can't publish it like this. And then it's another two years of working with Al, typically in an, in an outline form for about eight months. 
back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, until then, you are you are permitted to go forth and write your novel, and so that's that's how that happens. So it actually took about twelve years from beginning to end uh, to get it published. Wow, that, yeah. that's certainly a journey. Yes, it was. It was, but I felt very passionate about it. The first, you know, the first half of the book, it was really cathartic for me to write, mm-hmm. and it's a topic I'm very passionate about about autism, about Asperger's, um, and about how. You can handle these situations, and things things do turn out well, as they have for my for my boys. And right. um, it doesn't always happen, but it can happen. So I wanted that message out. Sure. And and what was that process like working with Al? I've I've certainly read about him and heard <laughs> heard about him. <laughs> I love Al. I love working with Al. Um, he is creative. It's it's he is your editor. You don't need an editor. When I have Al. I've had maybe one request for an additional scene in two books. Al is so engaged with you, and he particularly likes working with new authors. He comes up with all kinds of ideas. He's very responsive. He's very clear, um, and he's just so knowledgeable. He knows he knows everything. I I really can't imagine writing a book without Al. Wow, that that's that's interesting. So so, can you you mentioned like this eight month process of of writing a, a, just an outline? So can you kind of can you kind of encapsulate kind of what his what his process is like? I mean, what is he what is he kind of um, what does he like, want? Yeah, what does he want? And what is he kind of pushing you towards? I guess is the the way to put it. Well, it starts out. Um, he wants to know the idea. And he wants to know the ending, first of all. Um, and then you start out by doing one sentence for each chapter, let's say, or each scene. And then you, you, what you do, what it does, and I was very much against it. You know, I'm, I can't do that. I have to create my characters and, you know, I, they have to come as I write. And, you know, I've learned now that that is not the case. And what the outlining does as you go forward and you add layer upon layer to those sentences in each scene in each chapter is you you find pitfalls and plot problems and character problems and just just whatever problems you would find as you would be writing the book you find them out in advance so he basically layers you know paragraph upon paragraph i end up with a 70 or 80 page single spaced outline and from that i write and you know everything changes when you write but you have anticipated a lot of the problems you would otherwise run into, it really cuts down on time and makes you very clear about what the book is about, who your characters are in, in great depth, uh, what the tensions are, what the what the real goal is, you know, in the novel. And um, it's a very interesting process. Very intense, though. Ken Follett uh, uh, is represented by Al, and I've been told that he has just huge books and books of Al's comments to his outlines. <laughs> <laughs> so you go through that process and it's, and it's very rigorous and it's very interesting. I find it very interesting to go through. That, that's, that's interesting. So uh, I'm curious, given your success in, in, in both writing and having Saving Max and the Tulip Eaters published, what advice would you offer for aspiring writers who may be listening, who want to publish their own novels or stories? Uh, my first, my first advice would be to get a reader. If you have finished your manuscript, get a reader. Find someone in your genre who you respect, 
uh, go through that process with them, let them read it, give you advice, get it as polished as you possibly can. Um, be as as brief as you can with your writing, as spare with your writing as you can. Um, be clear. Write good sentences. <laughs> but then uh, after you get a reader, then you need to find find somebody to help you get an agent. Uh, have your reader recommend an agent for you. There are different different organizations that and businesses that do that. Um, I used one, and they found me the first agent that wasn't very good, but when I went back, they found me out. So uh, that's what I would recommend. It's much too big a chore to try to go through the big book and pick out an agent and send a cold letter. It just I just don't think it works. Interesting. So um, are you working on another novel now? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm working on Finding Marianne, which is the sequel to Saving Max. Great. As you may you may or may not know that at the end of Saving Max, Marianne, the villain, uh, escaped from the courthouse. So this book picks up a couple of years later where Marianne reappears on the scene and is out for vengeance. And so this is about whether Marianne gets gets found and what happens to Marianne when she's caught or if she's caught and what Danielle, Max, and Dokes have to go through in the interim. Interesting. So, so what, what books or writers have you read recently that, that, that really impressed you and that you would recommend? Gosh, you know, I, uh, I can never come up with the name of a, <laughs> of a book. Um, there's a, a book I read called, uh, the ship of gold in the blue sea, I think it's called, which is an, which is nonfiction and is, is very good. I don't remember the author. Mm -hmm. uh, I read, you know, I read so many books. I read thrillers. That's mm -hmm. what I read. Um, I love Scott Turow, obviously. Um, I just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm really bad at this. I'm really okay. bad at not, not a problem. Not a problem. So, <laughs> so what was the what was the nonfiction book about that you that you mentioned? It was very interesting. I was an admiralty lawyer, an international lawyer and an admiralty lawyer. So I've always been interested in shipping. My, my father was a ship's agent, so that's how I got into it. And this was a, this was a almost painful book. It was 800 pages long or something. Every single detail about finding golden treasure on a Spanish galleon off the coast of Florida and what's involved legally and, and what they had to go through um, before they actually had uh, subs that worked. It was really interesting. So it's all about the engineering, all about the mechanics. It was also all about the legal problems about staking a claim to, a, you know, a wreck. Uh, just fascinating. The guy did his research. It was it was really something. I don't know what he did after we wrote the book. He probably died because <laughs> after 800 pages of that, I think I'd die. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, well, where can people find you online? Uh, avhbooks.com and I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I have a blog on my website. You can also read uh, two chapters, the first two chapters of both Saving Max and the Tulip Peters on my website. So you might want to check that out. There's a lot of information um, on my Facebook page about the Tulip Peters and the background and my involvement and why I did it. So I think uh, I think the website would be the place to start. Great. Great. Well, like, again, we've been speaking with Antoinette Van Houten, 
author of the new thriller novel, The Tulip Eaters. The book is available in bookstores now, so grab a copy. Antoinette, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate it. Sure. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.